This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back to World to Win, everyone. Um, Last week, we had an episode on the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. So if you haven't seen it, make sure you check it out. And if you watched the movie in the meantime and also heard our review, let us know in the comments what you thought. I'm super curious what people thought about our Marxist analysis um, on the movie. This week, though, we're changing course a little bit, and we're actually going to talk about something that we criticized the movie for, the lack of a working class movement. Today, we're going to talk about um, the exciting um, events that are happening in Kazakhstan right now. Um, there's a lot of violence going on, uh, police repression, and we have um, a member of the International Executive of the International Social Alternative here with us today, Rob. But first, of course, I want to say hi to Yara. Yara, how have you been? I'm good. I'm good. I've had a really, really busy week. It seems like things with the virus are kind of changing. So And obviously back into political action after the new year. So really exciting stuff. What about you? Same. It's like, you know, we, our lives get off Zoom. Now we're back on Zoom. I heard a a stat saying that in the US we have the most hospitalizations we've ever had during the pandemic, which I, I didn't realize it was, you know, that high, but we're getting through it, aren't we, Yara? Yeah, we are. It's kind of like every day we hear about more and more people who have a, like, I know I just got a message from my dad that like my family, one of my family members has it now. So it's just, I guess we have to learn how to live with it. And it's, I think it makes it even more exciting to see that even during these times that everywhere around the world are insane with the virus, still there's movements and working class people are still struggling and not, you know, waiting for it to pass before they're fighting, which is amazing. Absolutely. And it's it's pushing people into struggle. So, I mean, let's get started. You know, it's still early in 2020 and we really did start with the bang with a bang. It seems like Kazakhstan, which is what we're talking about today, was really the first country to um, kind of put their stamp on. Uh, we're not taking we're not taking things as we normally do any longer. Um, you know, we saw we were seeing mass uprisings in Kazakhstan due to um, a rise in gas prices. There's been revolts spread from every corner of the country, um, which is located in Central Asia. Um, and, you know, events have escalated really, really quickly. Just within actually five days of the movement, Russian troops um, were called to violently suppress the, the popular rebellion. Um, and unfortunately, so far, 164 people um, have been killed and, you know, hundreds more have been injured. And so we have Rob with us here today, who is one of our our regulars here on World to Win. It's It's good to see you again, Rob. How have you been? I've been good. We've just come out of the new year and we don't even finish the new year holiday. And as you say, uh, there's already uprisings taking place. So it's keeping us busy. Well, Rob, let's get right into it. I mean, the immediate spark for these protests was the doubling of oil prices, which is absolutely insane. Um, But it seems like it's about much more than that. So can you start off by explaining some of the differences that are drawing people to the streets? You know, what life is like for working class people and for poor people in Kazakhstan? Yes, well, the, the whole protest sets off after a notice on the 1st of January by the government that they were going to increase gas prices. 
Uh, I know there's a difference between English and American on this, but we're talking about liquid gas that it, that a lot of people in Kazakhstan use to fuel their cars. And the price went up by 50%. And it made people in Janao Zen and the Mangistar region extremely angry because they're the people that pump this gas out of the ground. And then suddenly they're faced with this. As soon as the protest started, the government backed off, at least in that region. And they said, OK, we'll drop the price. It was 60. Then it went up to 120. And then they said they're going to drop it down to 50. So they even dropped it lower than it was in the beginning. But it was too late because the oil workers and their families and the, the people who were supporting them said, yes, but all the other prices are going up as well. They then started to say, we want a doubling of our wages. And they also said, we want the Akim, who is the in effect the regional mayor, to resign. And they demanded the resignation of the whole national government. And the phrase that they used was that we want a government in which none of the present uh, people are involved. Uh, so in other words, they just wanted to clear out the whole lot of them from the uh, governments. And of course, those demonstrations then spread across the whole of Kazakhstan, which, as you said, it, it, it's a massive country. It's bigger than Western Europe in geography. And uh, it, it, it hit every area. It went to the south. It went up to the north and east, which are closer to Russia, and um, there are more Russians and Russian speakers in those areas. Uh, and, and when it went on, then they started. They made quite clear they wanted the release of the political prisoners, and a lot of them, of course, were there from the previous the repression of the uprising. I think it's ten years ago now in Janauzen when the oil workers were on strike there, and a whole number of other demands related like uh, that. So it was against corruption, it was against price rises, it was against the cost of living and so on. Yeah, and I think you said the, the thing, I think that really struck a lot of people looking at it, and me too, is the whole part about how they want to completely replace the people in charge. But I was wondering, because I think there's, about this region generally, it's very complicated to understand if you're not from that region, kind of like, political system and how it works and I know that while we have Nazarbayev who stepped down as president in 2019 he's still calling the shots about all things but we also know that he used to be part of uh, the Kazakhstan communists so can you kind of explain to us how that is possible that like why how can he be communist and also do all of these things? And why are people opposing it uh, and calling for everyone to uh, uh, kind of leave? Yes, I think that's an important question. I, I, there's, a, there's another point I think it's worth making first, though, because I've noticed on some uh, sites, left-wing sites as well, um, most notably, for example, on Jacobin sites, there's an article on this issue that calls Kazakhstan a model for capitalism. And they actually go into it and they say that Kazakhstan has stood out because it has a high economic level, formal attributes of democracy, and few restrictions on Western culture. Now, that is, that is complete nonsense. That is, everything that they say there is true for the rich. Um, but it's not a democracy. It's a petrol, petrocracy. If that, if that word comes across so well, a combination of democracy and petrol. Um, uh, the living standards for the rich are very, very rich, are very, very high. 
They reckon that 162 people hold the whole wealth of the country, which is a country rich in oil, gas, uranium, copper, and a whole number of other uh, very expensive uh, minerals that are sold on the world market and so on. And yet for ordinary people, uh, the living standards are extremely low. The median wage, in other words, half of the population earn less than $300 a month. Um, that's notwithstanding the fact that a lot of them work in the oil fields, which are making absolutely billions of uh, dollars and so on for the, uh, for the government. The minimum wage has stayed at $100 for, I think, four years now, has only just been put up to 137 and you have a massive differentiation at every level. You have it between the rich and the poor within the country. You have it between the different regions. You have a differentiation within the workforce where they consciously pay a small group of workers very high wages and the rest are living on absolute poverty wages with no, no rights and so on. And of course you have um, the difference between men and women. Men earn 20% more than women. And then you have the ecological problems as well. You have two major ecological, ecological disasters in the country around the former nuclear test site in the east and around the Sea of Azov, which has effectively disappeared in the, in the west part of the country. In Mangistau, which is where this protest started, last summer there was a drought that led to thousands of cattle dying and the government making no real attempt to do anything about it. So all of these problems have, have capped in. And how has that come about? Nazarbayev, as you said, Yara, was a, a former communist. He was leader of the communist uh, Kazakhstan, uh, a, friend, a close friend and ally of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who was, of course, the person who started off perestroika in the Soviet Union. And when, they, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Nazarbayev carried on. Only he banned the Communist Party, of which he was the leader, um, uh, and immediately went down the uh, capitalist path, pushing out any opposition groups, building around himself an authoritarian regime. And it wasn't just an authoritarian regime, it was a regime in which all the members of his family and the hangers-on were the ones who got very rich. And you've had very quickly this, uh, this uh, change taking place. Communists, and it's happened all over the former Soviet Union, of course, it was the former communists, the young communists in particular, the KGB in particular, who then became the new capitalists and have set up their authoritarian uh, regimes and so on. So when he went, when he in effect retired, well, I said in effect retired, he didn't retire. When he announced he was leaving the uh, post as president, he, he put um, Takayev in as his, as his um, substitute, who was no more than a marionette, he was a former former friend. Well, he was he was a friend at the time, a close colleague. He was seen as a very loyal to Nazarbayev, and Nazarbayev became chair of the security services. In other words, he held all the all the all the power, the police, and so on, in his hands. And he put through. Well, he had through the whole state structure. His people, as head of the regions, as he, as head of the KGB, uh, the KNB, the security services, they had uh, control of the oil companies and so on and so forth. So they kept everything in their hands in that way. And this was a major factor. When the protests started, they were they were to get rid of Nazarbayev. They were get to get rid of him. The violence that took place in the early stages was not violence against the persons. 
against people. It was violence against the symbols of the Nazarbayev regime. They attacked the party offices. They attacked the Akimats, which is the mayor's office and the administration in each of the cities. They attacked, um, they attacked the palaces of Nazarbayev and of uh, Takayev and so on. And it was a very conscious thing to get rid of the old regime. And of course, they pulled down Nazarbayev's statue in one area. Well, pulling down statues is definitely something we've talked about, you know, on this show before, you know, at the height of uh, the the most recent uh, Black Lives Matter movement, we saw around the world um, protesters really pulling down um, old uh, racist statues as a as a symbol of of saying we want to change and we're not going to, you know, glorify these, um, you know, horrific leaders. And so it's nice to see that, uh, you know, the connections that are made with um uh, movements around the world. But I want to talk specifically about the protests, Rob. I'm going to quote a line from the article that was um, written for the International Socialist Alternatives website, um, which you can find in the bio. It's really good because I've kind of just, you know, while you've been talking, I've just been so in awe of what you're saying because I I'm not going to lie. I don't know a ton about this region of the world, and this is extremely interesting um, and inspiring. But there's a line from the article, and it says, Revolutionary events such as those that have taken place in Kazakhstan over the last couple of days have their own dynamic. Once started, they're difficult to stop. Um, I really I really love this. It gives you a nice visual of what's going on there. But can you give us a little bit more insight to the character of these protests? Yes, well, I'll try. I mean, uh, we have to recognize now, of course, that um, it does look as if the protests have died down for a period. And I'll come on to, I'll come on to how they died down a bit later. But yes, it, uh, they, they started very much in Janauzen. And anybody who's followed the history of Kazakhstan will know the significance. Janauzen is the center of the oil and the gas region. They had independent unions. Ten years ago, they had a seven-month strike that actually um, uh, we, inter we intervened in and I, I was there and other of our comrades were, were there during the time of that strike and so on. And the strike was destroyed at the end by a horrific massacre. And the, regime, the 70 workers at least were killed in, in that and many more were put into prison. And the regime spread all this myth about violence and, uh, and so on. And it's a complete lie. Because we know, uh, we were involved in discussions with the, uh, the workers' committee at the time. They planned the protests that took place on that day. And they were, they were making sure that everything was being kept uh, disciplined and safe and so on. So that there wasn't any violence that could be provoked. And the violence that did take place was clearly from outside provocateurs who were, who were sent in. Uh, Rob, isn't that always how it is? We've seen that time and time again. It's the, you know, it's the the police or the, you know, the provocateurs, as you're saying, that are actually the ones that are inciting the violence. Yet the the mainstream media makes it seem like it's the protesters themselves that are the ones that are, um, you know, breaking windows and and uh, you know, uh, yeah, being violent. Yes, and unfortunately, some of the left have fallen into the trap as well sort of, um, is, is, uh, what is it, damn both of your houses because we shouldn't have violence in this because you're discrediting and so on. I read one site this week that said it was protesters that started shooting at the police and so on. Well, that, uh, that, that just wasn't true at the beginning. But we would, be, we would be wrong to say that there wasn't anger. There was huge anger in the protests. If you looked at the videos and the pictures that were coming out of Zen. 
they were extremely disciplined. They had big mass demonstrations and rallies in the city centre and they were almost standing in rows uh, and so on. And you could see that there was absolutely no violence and no disruption there. But in those areas where they didn't have those organisations, and we have to say that workers' organisations in this part of the world are very weak, um, uh, Janowson is probably the strongest workers' organisation in the whole of the former Soviet Union. Uh, where those didn't exist, the anger came to the forefront. And that was particularly the case in Alma-Ata, which is the, it's the biggest city in, um, uh, in Kazakhstan. It's got a population of about 2 million, if I'm not mistaken. And around Alma-Ata, you have almost shanty towns that built up in the last 20 years, which, is, which have come after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They basically have collapsed the whole of the rural economy. And the young Kazakh uh, youth have come into the urban areas and around the cities where they don't have anywhere proper to live. They've built up these shanty towns. And there is absolutely huge anger uh, in those areas. And when there hasn't been an organization to uh, discipline them, of course, there has been a, a certain element of violence. They've attacked buildings and so on. They've attacked the statues and so on. But the violence that the regime now talk about is of a different nature. It appears to have been consciously organized by the regime, particularly in Alma Ata, as an excuse to uh, come in. To give some examples, um, um, for example, there was a, uh, a, a message we got uh, was, sent, was sent to us from somebody who had been in the uh, main square in Alma Ata the morning after the night of the main uh, violence. And he said what had happened, there was a group of them who had been peacefully protesting the day before, uh, they had, um, they'd had, they had, they were shouting uh, slogans and demands and so on during the daytime. And as the protesters left the square, it seemed that suddenly the police left the square too. And then that was when these looters and marauders and so on came in and started to uh, started to cause a violence. And some of them were wearing sports costumes. Others appeared to have sort of um, all the same clothes and so on. It was clear that they'd been bust in from somewhere by somebody. The next morning, he said, it seemed that the square was quiet and there were protesters gathering again. And, and one of them called people together. They had, a, 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 if you like, an ad hoc meeting on the square and they were they were deciding what slogans they were going to use for the day and then they decided how they were going to defend themselves and try and stop looters and provocateurs carrying on and there was somebody around the square who was shouting and trying to trying to get them to uh, to uh, start moving and do something violent and so on and they resisted it but then the police opened fire on that group in the square uh, without any warning and shot one of them, killed one of them, a 20-year-old journalist, died out of that. Now that's typical of what, of what was actually happening in the square. The key moment appears to be, and it's difficult to piece together exactly what happened, because you get different reports and different versions, but the key moment appears to be when Tekayev early on gave the order to the police to suppress the movement, which in itself was a dangerous move because it could have provoked an even wider movement. Uh, he put the order out, and as one of the reports that we've seen uh, puts it, but the general in charge of the police, who happens to be one of Nazarbayev's nephews, didn't give the order, he gave another order. 
And it appears to be that some of the places that were attacked by the looters were actually uh, abandoned by the police just just minutes before the attacks took place. In particular, the headquarters of the KNB in Armour Arta. It was raided by looters who seized all the weapons that were in the building and yet there was no guards on the door when they arrived because they'd been told to go home. And this is a common feature. And it seems to be that Tokayev saw what was happening, saw that the uh, police were refusing to implement his orders, realised that behind this was Nazarbayev's uh, uh, people who were, who had been having arguments with Tokayev in the past uh, couple of years over different issues, particularly over the way that COVID was being dealt with. And uh, uh, they were trying to uh, demonstrate to Tokayev that he didn't control everything. And he got angry. He, he publicly sacked Nazarbayev as head of the Security Council, sacked a few other people from the KMB. And then the violence started. And it appears to have been a reaction to that, to try and create a conflict or to strengthen the conflict within the ruling elite, which, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with the protests. It's insane, isn't it? Like, I feel like every person who ever went to kind of like a left protest uh, should understand this and shouldn't understand kind of like how the state and kind of like the elite are using their power to, first of all, divide the movement, but also kind of discredit the movement as well. And I think that when you add into it also the personal ego of these individuals in the elite, you just create a whole mess like we're seeing in Kazakhstan. And I think the the fact that, you know, people like the, the, the protesters are being called terrorists, despite the fact that we're constantly seeing that the people who are inciting the violence are actually kind of like provocateurs or people from the government is just insane to me. And it's so sad to see that kind of like some of the left are buying into these. And I feel like that comes from a really bad political approach that a lot of people on the left have uh, to basically anything to do with Russia. Um, and I do want to kind of ask you a question about that, because I do think that we other than, you know, the, the part about ter terrorists or like blaming the, the protesters, we are seeing a lot of people expect, like, you know, Putin is putting that forward massively, but also a lot of, like, some people on the left are, are kind of reiterating it, saying that the protests in Kazakhstan are not kind of, you know, grassroots uh, movements, but they're actually like a color revolution that uh, foreign powers intervening um, to kind of, uh, you know, shake the Russian kind of. Uh, uh, influence there so do you think there is kind of like a cynical uh foreign power that's intervening to do that or is this a grassroots movement well uh, in this on this occasion no i think it's a very it's a very different situation you have you have to understand that the mentality of people like Tsikhaev, Nazarbayev, Putin and a number of other leaders in this region they have got into a mentality that they are right-wing conservatives, in the worst in the worst description in the worst um, uh, way that they can be, and they have this feeling all the time that their interests, their personal, their national interests, are under attack from outside. So they have this mentality that when there's a protest that takes place that somehow it's not been ordinary people. Ordinary people aren't capable of making their minds up in this way. That ordinary people are being manoeuvred by some foreign power or, or some uh, oligarch or so on. Um, uh, 
and there's an element of, there is an element of truth in it but there's an element of truth in all revolutionary situations right back I, re, I remember I first started when there were the revolutions against the um, fascist and far-right governments in southern Europe in Spain in Greece and so on and during those the um, uh, you had the CIA try to intervene to buy up different left-wing leaders and so on then you had the social democrats when you had the collapse of the Soviet Union there's always that case there's always that happening but it hasn't succeeded because there has been strong left-wing trade union currents and organizations that have given these um, uh, protests a lead and have pulled them away and, the, and these groups have not, uh, have not gained traction why do they gain traction now? In the Ukraine, for example, I was in Ukraine during the um, uh, during the uh, first of the coloured revolutions. I, I I can say that the Americans and the Canadians and the British were all trying to intervene in it because I happened to be in a cafe and I heard some of the diplomats in there sitting there plotting, plotting away. Of course, that happens. Nobody denies that. But if there is genuine working class organisations, they won't get traction. But here. In what has happened in Kazakhstan, it is complete nonsense to talk about uh, a coloured revolution in that sense. Because what foreign power has intervened? None. The American State Department sent a letter to Takaya after he announced that he was, that he was uh, clamping down to give him full support and hoping for the speedy restoration of order. Why? Because 30% of foreign investment in Kazakhstan is by the Americans into the oil fields. Chinese as well. They wanted stability. They have 20% of the uh, investment in Kazakhstan in the oil fields. And not only that, Kazakhstan borders onto, I'm going to mispronounce this, Hingyang, the province where the Uyghurs are living. And there's actually quite a few Uyghurs in, uh, in Kazakhstan as well. So the last thing that China wanted was instability on its borders. So it was quite happy. The European Union sent a letter uh, to say we hope that you can find dialogue and a peaceful solution, no condemnation of the uh, of the regime for 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 cutting down. They've got twenty percent of investment in the oil fields, so you can see where there's oil, uh, there are interests, and the foreign powers weren't interested. But there's another aspect to the coloured revolution. In all the coloured revolutions, so-called, that have taken place, starting in Serbia, in uh, in uh, in Georgia. In Ukraine, in Kyrgyzstan, um, where there were a, a couple and so on, and now in Kazakhstan, and I think there was an attempt in Azerbaijan as well, they have started spontaneously as protests from the ordinary people against corruption, against poverty, uh, uh, and, and maybe there's other sparks involved as well. But there have been genuine spontaneous protests that have then been taken over by the forces. But in Kazakhstan, what we've seen is not outside forces coming in, unless you exclude the Russians from this, of course. But you've seen the conflict within the ruling elite. They have tried to take, take advantage of, uh, of the protests for their own interests. Rob, this has been so interesting. I'm just kind of like in awe. I feel like, you know, I'm like on the edge of my seat. You're going through these details. It's just, uh, it, it's super interesting. And I really appreciate you coming on, on to talk to us about this today. Um, but Rob, we've seen how quickly things have escalated with, you know, Putin sending in Russian troops to put down the protests. And like, let's be clear, it's not just Kazakhstan that, you know, has the threat of, of Russian troops at this time. Um, but, you know, it, it 
it can seem like a, a, a show of strength from Putin. You know, he's kind of like flexing his military muscle a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you think, you know, uh, why does he need to do that? It, it, it shows that these protests are actually making him nervous. Um, why do you think that that's so? Well, if you think about it, um, when did COVID appear two years ago? But since COVID appeared, we've had the, we've seen the big uh, uprising in effect in Belarus. There's been the major protests in the Russian Far East. You've had the youth protest against corruption in uh, Moscow, and then again against the uh, arrest of Navalny and the poisoning of Navalny. You've had almost constant um, difficulties in Armenia. You've had the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You have. Um, major protests about the ecology in Georgia and of course you have this conflict that is potential uh, potentially very dangerous between Ukraine and Russia uh, about which the NATO talks are taking place at the moment so it's it's quite clear that there is no part of this world that is safe secure and um, in a good position the mood of the Russian population as I understand it was it's difficult to judge because uh, there's a holiday. The holiday only finished yesterday. Uh, it's a bit later than the rest of the world. But there was a sort of um, a vox pop and a, a sort of a semi-official opinion poll which indicated that over 40% of the population did not support the use of troops in uh, Kazakhstan. Now that's a big difference from 10 years ago when they sent... They, um, they, they sent uh, what they called the green men, the, the polite green men into Crimea to start the uh, the process of taking over Crimea and then East Ukraine, where 99% of the population of Russia were fully in favour of what was going on. So you can see that on the one hand, it gives the image of, of strength. Um, two years ago, Lukashenko and Belarus wasn't keen on supporting uh, Russia. Uh, because of what had happened in Ukraine, now he's an ally of Russia. In fact, he was—he he this week has said that we sh that they should send the troops into Tajikistan and Uzbekistan in advance, so that there isn't another uh, uprising in those countries. So he wants preventative measures against them. Uh, now, um, Tikhayev and the Kazakhstan authorities appear to be hostages to the Russian regime. You should know, I don't know if it's hit the uh, the press yet, but the announcement is that the troops are going to start withdrawing tomorrow. And within 10 days, they will have withdrawn fully from, uh, from Kazakhstan. Now, I suspect what will happen is they will withdraw the, the, the actual troops, but they will leave advisors, they will leave trainers, and they will leave these mercenaries that they have in that they, they used in Ukraine, that they used in um, in Chechnya, that they use in Syria and so on, and uh, Central Africa, uh, and, and they will be there to to act as a spine for the uh, local uh, military. But it has been a clear change in orientation of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan up to now, under Nazarbayev, what it had a multi-vector policy. Uh, support from China, from America and from Russia. Now of course it's going to be much more pro-Russian in, in its approach and of course we can expect, I think, probably a redivision of some of the privatized oil companies um, in favor of Russia of course in this situation. So it becomes part of the overall Cold War that is, that is, that is dividing the world, leading to a polarization 
and this this if you like is a second layer of the cold war that has started between china and the us so you mentioned rob that they are you know possibly going to attempt um preventative measures in other countries um near uh kazakhstan in case that there's um some uprisings um and you know you mentioned earlier in the show it's in december i think was the the 10 year anniversary um of the the strike of oil workers um that lasted 7 months which is you know a really inspiring story we have an article on our website um that people should totally check out if you haven't if you haven't read about it um you know the demands that were uh that these workers came up with and the just the militant traditions of the the industrial workers are really inspirational um so with all of this in mind you know the the uh you know tradition of the the oil workers in this area um putin you know preparing the troops to kind of suppress the movement um the fact that you know uh people are calling for things that you know around the world we're seeing these calls for you know a rise in in wages lowering of utilities etc et do you think that this will be enough um to stop the protests or uh should we expect resistance from the the Kazakhstan working class no and i think it's too it's too early to say exactly what is going to happen now it is quite clear that for now the protests have died down um in part because there was a lot of confusion about the role of this this violence in armata and so on that certainly a layer that would normally have supported the protests were 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 shocked by it and taken aback and there will be a period of reflection in my opinion in in that area but you can see the way that things are going because tokayev today yesterday he made a speech in which he said that it was completely unjustified the wealth that some of the rich had accumulated in uh, in um, kazakhstan and that one of the near, that one of the tasks his government would face would be to redistribute that wealth now the only person he's talking against there is nazarbayev because they're the ones with all the wealth in their hands and so on. And it's actually created a bit of confusion in Janel Zen, because at the beginning, Janel Zen demanded, I'm talking about the working class of Janel Zen, not the, the bourgeois in Janel Zen, but the working class in Janel Zen demanded the whole government should go. But a couple of days ago, they started to talk about Tokayev being a, a, a decent bloke, and maybe the other should go and he would be okay. And maybe he's reflecting that at the moment because today he made another speech and when basically he attacked very uh, virulently the uh, KNB the role that they had played and the fact that they hadn't uh, fulfilled his orders and talking about the need to get rid of some of the key people and actually there has been a purge taking place within that so you may have a period that there are concessions made the fact that they retreated from the oil price rise or the gas price rise for a period is one uh, there's been i've seen a report of 4000 arrests now um, i don't think uh, uh, and the report is that they will have life sentences but i don't think that they'll be able to do that because there'll be uproar in the different cities if too many are put away and so on and there will be there will be a wave of being, people being put in prison and that may include a large section of a section of the ruling elite uh uh from uh, from uh, Nazarbayev's side and so on and by the way i have to uh, qualify what i'm saying is this is what we're gleaning out of the different reports we get and from the press reports from the area we don't know exactly who did what in this 
um, and we won't know. The only way that we can resolve that is by having a, a having a proper investigation, an open investigation of what happened. And the only people that can do that really are the workers themselves and their supporters who can have an independent view to see who did what, when and where in this process to really find out who was guilty of what actually happened. But to uh, come back to it, so for a period you can have maybe some concessions made. Now it appears that the Russians are going to withdraw at least most of the troops and so on. So they will keep they will keep uh, they will keep Tsarkaev as a as a as a hostage. I think it's ridiculous to say, as some groups do, that maybe the Russians will then have some sort of deal with one of the liberal oligarchs that are in exile to come back and take over as an opposition force. The idea that the Russians will accept a liberal regime in that country, I think, is 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 just untenable. They will work with Tsarskaya. It will be far more of a pro-Russian regime. And the important thing is that Zhenaozen ten years ago was crushed by the by the police. It was shocked, it was demoralized, and it was anyway. The, the protest was isolated in one region of the country. This hasn't happened in the same way this time. They, they certainly haven't crushed the Zhen Ao Zen movement and so on. There were strikes in other major companies like Kazakh Mies, uh, uh, reports of strikes in Karaganda, the coal fields, and, uh, and in ArcelorMittal, uh, another big international company and so on. And the regime have had to hold back from going too far. They've arrested some independent union leaders, but it hasn't been crushed in the same way. So it means after a period of reflection, I think we could see a new movement on a, on a, on a higher level coming forward. I, I don't know if you agree, but I kind of feel like it's very similar to the Arab Spring uh, when it started in 2011. There were like very similar videos and reports coming out uh, but obviously now, <laughs> with uh, retrospect, we know that in in most places this move movement failed. And I think that doesn't mean that this movement wasn't really important. I think we can learn a lot about program, about strategy, about the demands that we need to uh, put forward and how we need to organize as well. So what are kind of like the, the demands that come out? And also, what are the lessons that we can learn from both the Arab Springs, but, but from the Arab Spring, but also from all of the other, you know, very rich history of movements that we've had around the world and from their failures or successes? Well, you make a very valid point. I was talking about an hour ago um, to one of our comrades who had actually been in Egypt during the Arab Spring. And he was saying, and it was quite clear, the, fir the first few hours of what was happening in Kazakhstan was, was the same. It was the, the anger that was spinning over and the attacks on the official buildings and so on, not on people, but on the property of the of the ruling elite and so on. It, it was almost as if it was a repeat of that. Um, and of course, in the Arab Spring, particularly in countries like Egypt to a degree and particularly in Tunisia and so on, you had a more organised uh, working class that could have played more of a role if they'd had the leadership. But you have the situation here where, in my opinion, ten years ago, the the oil workers had quite well-developed demands. Uh, they were talking about the nationalisation of gas and oil. They spoke about the need for it to be under workers' control, so it 
nationalisation didn't mean handing it all over to the government and the government becoming more corrupt out of it. Um, they spoke about the need to boycott the presidential election. Uh, they spoke about the need to set up a workers' party that could actually uh, have uh, alternative candidates and fight for political power uh, in the uh, country and so on, or, ra or rather to, to help the workers fight for political power in the country. But um, uh, this time, the demands weren't as well developed. Um, for, exa for example, instead of talking about the, uh, the nationalisation, they spoke about the need to uh, stop outsourcing from the big corporations, which are mainly uh, state-controlled and so on, which is a major problem in, uh, in the oil industry there. Everybody works for a small company with about 20, 30, 40 employers and so on, so they can, keep, they can play one group off against another. Um, uh, so that's not quite as clear-cut as nationalisation. The same way they spoke about putting somebody in power who is not part of the elite. In other words, they didn't put forward an alternative. But at the same time, this was a national protest. And unlike last time when Zhen was left isolated, this time there were strikes in other places, in other regions, and so on. So hopefully the lesson will be drawn from this, that not only do we need to sharpen up the demands on the economy and so on, uh, we have uh, that uh, there are. It's necessary to have demands that will attract the unemployed youth around Dharma Arta for so on, with jobs and proper wages and so on, and proper housing for them. Uh, there needs to be demands that can attract the layer of the impoverished middle class, who, um, because of COVID and so on, they've been losing income and so on. They've got big credit uh, bills and so on. This happened 10 years ago. It was a major feature of Kazakhstan life, where a section of the middle class become pauperized uh, because of what had happened. So you need a whole set of demands like that. But then, of course, you need uh, you have to turn this from strike action into developing a political alternative. And in Kazakhstan, you can't. Uh, there's no possibility of fighting in, in an election. Um, you can't just stand candidates in the election, they'll rule them out and um, uh, put people in prison as they do in other parts of this uh, region and so on. So um, a political party has to have another, another approach. It has to have the approach of, of organising, uh, of building their support in the areas and at key times like this have given a lead to make sure that a movement like this can actually go through to uh, a successful uh, change of the regime. I want to thank you so much for coming on, um, Rob. You know, some of my favorite episodes have you, uh, have you in it. So thanks again, and, and hopefully we have you on again real soon. Good. Good to speak to you again. Well, I, I always really like having Rob on the show because I feel like every time he is on, I learn something. And he has such a soothing voice. He's such a good storyteller. And it's really important to be able to get information like this, because like you said, we haven't been able to find this in the corporate media. So to have someone who's so in touch with the situation there is is uh, it's really great for us to, you know, be able to hear him telling what's going on over there. Yeah, 100 percent. And I feel like especially about that region of the world, it's so difficult to get this information. But actually, if far. Uh, the people watching us now are interested in that region and what's happening, you can actually follow Instagram and TikTok um, because they give updates all the time and it's really, really good. So uh, you should check that out. It's going to be linked in the description box. But now uh, we're going to 
our favorite part of every episode, the shout out of the week. And this week, we're going to give a massive shout out to the Clover Dairy Walk workers in South Africa. Uh, they've been on strike since November. There's 5,000 of them. And there's kind of talks about uh, wrapping up operations in South Africa and uh, striking against that and against also layoffs. So it's really impressive that they've been striking for so long. And there was also uh, some striking happening in 2020 as well. So really want to give a massive shout out about this. And, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen constant pickets. Uh, we've seen demonstrations as well. And there's also a boycott campaign. Uh, uh, that they're pushing for Clover products because uh, we saw that in 2019 Clover was taken over by an Israeli company that's uh, taking land from uh, Palestinians and this strike is really inspiring not just because of how active it is but also because they're directly connecting uh, their uh, kind of uh, situation in the protests uh, to the struggle of Palestinian masses. So that's really interesting and really inspiring. And I think for, for as demands go, we've seen some majorly kind of uh, radical demands from the workers. We've seen them uh, call, call for the nationalization of Clover in South Africa on the basis of democratic workers' control, which obviously is... A great demand, but it's also really radical and really shows the consciousness of the workers in uh, in this uh, uh, in Clover, and uh, they're also uh, seeing it as kind of like an alternative to the hostile and the imperialist uh, uh, Milko company, the, the uh, parent company, the Israeli company, uh, and uh, kind of the dismembering of Clover, uh, so uh, and fighting the job loss losses as well. So that's really incredible and I think it's also important that we give a shout out specifically to our members because last weekend our members in the South African section of the ISA, WASP, helped organize a mass meeting uh, where it was agreed to escalate action uh, in, uh, in this year. So really looking forward to seeing what's going on with that and uh, we are definitely going to report on that uh, if anything big happens. But again, go and check out the social media of ISA because we are going to post about it. And you can ov obviously also follow our uh, South African uh, uh, section social media. So make sure to do that. And make sure to subscribe to our channel and also click the bell button so you're notified when we post next. Uh, so see you next week. Bye bye. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!